Becoming a photojournalist today requires more than just a passion for telling stories. With fewer staff positions available, you have to lead the life of a freelancer, which demands that you be proficient both as a storyteller and a business person. Each self-initiated story has to be considered for its potential audience, its demands on your time, and its ability to earn you an income. You're keeping a lot of balls in the air. Alison Zuka does that while telling stories that mean something to her. By considering the needs of both her nonprofit and editorial clients, she creates opportunities for herself that she might never receive if she were waiting by the phone, waiting for it to ring. She creates her own luck, her own opportunities. So how I have been working with pitches has been I photograph it first, and then I form a package, and then I send it. Largely, I've started doing that because some stories would come about and I was like, I can't wait for someone to approve it, you know, or if I'm working with a new editor for the first time, they might not know my work or they might not know me. So just getting out there and making photos first and then talking with editors is how I worked with this project. Managing time is a challenge for anyone with a freelance career, but especially so for a photographer who has to be present and in the moment to make the photographs. One has to make sure that the images being produced are making the most of the time allowed. For Allison, it's about having structure, even though she is working in a documentary tradition where the moments can be unexpected and unpredictable. Well, for me, long form or sh- like a short amount of time, either way, I make a shot list before I go in. That's really helpful for me. I I'd had some help from Mary Vinolas, who's a freelance photo editor, and she was looking at some of my work in like years ago. And she was like, your strongest work is when you have a clear idea, like you clearly identify what the story is. And she was like, some of your weaker work is the ones where you're not sure what the story is. We will talk to Allison about how she finds her stories through personal engagement and why the choice to earn a business rather than an art degree was the smartest decision she made for her career. This is Ibadi and X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Do you have to do much traveling for the kind of work that you're doing, or you're mostly covering? It's been local. Okay. In the South Southern California area. So that's been good. That's been really great. I enjoy that because after I did that one project, Dreams That Could Be, mm-hmm. that took so much fundraising and so much like a year of like pre-production to then do like three weeks of travel and like spending time, yeah. which felt like not a lot of time compared to all the back end stuff. And that was a, like a while ago. That was in 2015. But after that, I was like, I want to be local. So I very much have enjoyed and just moving out here a year and a half, like a year and a half ago. Okay. It's been nice being able to understand the different neighborhoods and different communities and in Los Angeles. Well, well tell me why you moved from from the East Coast out to here to Los Angeles, which is not a non-competitive world in terms of photography. Why did you decide to come out here as opposed to say going to New York or to a smaller smaller market? Just to do it. So it was like a life move. Oh, good of, for you. Uh, <laughs> My fiance and I were living in Annapolis, Maryland, outside D.C., so that was a really great photojournalism community as well out there. But uh, being from the East Coast, this was kind of a perfect time in our lives of, you know, we didn't have a house, we didn't have kids. We were like, now's now's a good time. So it was pretty much just a, a life move. 
Yeah, I, I, I tell young people who are out here, should I move to New York? I go, yeah. <laughs> you, you don't have to stay there. Right. But if you can, yeah. you want to be able to just make a major change like that while you can. Right. Before you have all the obligations of a mortgage and kids and totally and everything else. You even know? visually, I feel like, and like from a documentary standpoint, it's so great to live in just different communities and get to understand different neighborhoods and different areas of the country, of the world. I would love to live in Europe or something one day, but I don't see that happening as much as moving out here. People were like, wow, it's so far. And I was like, it's really, it's not that far. How do you find it different in terms of finding out, finding the, the stories that you, that you find for yourself, you know, being in the Los Angeles area with it largely being unfamiliar to you, you're sort of learning it mm-hmm. as opposed to the East coast where you were, more comfortable and settled? I would say it's it's the same process of just getting to know people and having conversations. I think the difference is that I've just been doing a little bit longer. So my approach mm-hmm. has been much more talking to meeting or people at organizations, so nonprofits or just community organizations, and finding out what important stories in the community or neighborhood that they are seeing as being as the experts in that area or that social issue or whatever the you know, organization is around and then trying to kind of meet people and tell stories through that way. Okay. So are, are you doing, cause you're doing works with nonprofits. You're also working for publications, mm-hmm. doing editorial work, getting commissioned work. So in the context that you just mentioned, are, are they also sort of the launching pad for stories that you're pitching the publications as well as, as trying to work with the organizations themselves? Yeah. So Lately, I've been working more so from that way of finding stories. And I have conversations with the organizations about what format works best. So whether that be the nonprofit commissioning me or whether I think it might be a better opportunity for me to find stories photojournalistically Mm -hmm. and then pitch those and not get paid by the nonprofit. So it's a very much a conversation of what does this like kind of relationship look like? Um, And I very much enjoyed more of the the editorial route in that way with the nonprofits of just meeting people and just like them allowing me to show up and spend time with people and get to, yeah, just spend time. So that's been a really kind of a new format that I've been trying out yeah. um, of storytelling and how that all plays out. But I've enjoyed that a lot. Can you give me an example of, of one of the nonprofits that you approached and then you realized that it was a good opportunity for you to pitch something editorially? Yeah, I mean, I guess the one that that came out not too long ago that was like a lighter story was around the um, group of women skating in Venice. Yeah, that's a fun. That's it's a fun, a fun one. Yeah. yeah, that group. I kind of they're not a big nonprofit, but they were very much a group that I was like, can I stick around and develop a story? I'm an independent photojournalist, so I'm not sure where this will land yet. This is my plan of pitching it to these types of publications. Would you be interested in like letting me hang out? And make it clear that it's for that purpose. Right. So that that worked out well. They've tried to hire me after that, but I I kind of am never sure about that. And I proceed with caution just because once the story came out, I want to keep it in that kind of realm versus kind of mixing of like the commission after and okay. having it come out as an editorial piece. How did you find out about them? I think through a friend. A friend was friends with one of the founders, and then I was like, this seems really interesting, and I haven't really seen anything like that. And then with the rise of like skateboarding going to the Olympics, I was like, this is kind of not that. It's very yeah. different, but it's still 
very interesting and something that's unique to, I think, Southern California specifically and even different in the area. Yeah. And for people who have not seen, seen the story, it's, it's, uh, and you can expand on this, but basically it's a, a group of middle-aged women who are, were, I guess, skaters themselves who are teaching young kids how to skate and sort of nav- navigate the culture. Yeah. It's a, it's more of actually these girls are, women are in their like mid twenties, late twenties, thirties, oh, okay. even learning to skateboard themselves within the past few years. Oh, wow. So it's not a community of women trying to, compete competitively in skateboarding. It's more of creating acceptance for women who aren't big skateboarders to enjoy the sport, which is interesting. Uh, and, and I saw that some of those things were being shot in Venice. So I can imagine that that, that, is, that, is, that area is filled with testosterone. So, <laughs> yeah. so I think that, that making a space like that safe and comfortable for, for girls who are interested in it, but are, might be intimidated by right. all of that is great. Right. And the visuals of it in the sense of like the aesthetic of a lot of times when there's female skateboarders, I think often like it's a, like I used to skateboard when I was little and I was like my punk rock days and I mm. loved it, like marched up to the half pipe and the guy was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. But I think like, like my aesthetic then was like very punk tomboy, like grungier, you know, more, more tomboy. But yeah. this group is trying to make the point of like, you don't have to be that You can still be girly and still ride a skateboard and um, feminine and things like that. So it's been cool. I mean, they've inspired me to start skateboarding again and actually skate better. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone on a board for about 10 seconds. <laughs> it was one of those boards where it, where the wheels aren't fixed, where it's oh, uh, wobbly. I got no, on. Yeah, I got on. I was like, okay, that's enough. Because <laughs> yeah. I used to skate when I was a kid, but it's been a long time. Yeah, it's just that's... like, that's not a good place to start again. <laughs> How long did you work on the, uh, on the, on that particular story before you were able to successfully. So that, um, similar to what we were saying before about trying to work on smaller pitches. So one, so that was a shorter timeframe and I gave myself like, okay, I I've worked on one feature first and then I did about one of the founders. And then the, um, so for that story, it was probably four or five times that I just met up with her in certain parts of her life, depending on if it was family or that was about her being a mother. Um, and skateboarding and the intersection of that. So that was four or five times that I was with them. And then I pitched it after that and it got picked up right away. And then the the general feature about the group, which was picked up by ESPN, was one day coverage. Oh, okay. So I was trying to find ways that I could tell stories in shorter time frames in addition to the longer format storytelling that I was doing on other stories. So when you got the, the additional day after you had gotten the, the job, was it... The pictures that you got subsequently, were they based on what the editor told you the story needed or how did that work? So how I have been working with pitches has been I photograph it first and then I form a package and then I send it. Largely, I started doing that because some stories would come about and I was like, I can't wait for someone to approve it, you know, or if I'm working with a new editor for the first time, they might not know my work or they might not know me. So just getting out there and making photos first and then talking with editors. It was how I worked with this project. Tell me about the, the writing because the, the photographs are great, but 
you still have to be able to sort of sell it when you're sending the email or the letter or whatever you're doing in terms of written form. So what's kind of what's the kind of work that you have to put into that? Yeah, I would say I definitely I actually wrote the piece for the general feature on the group, um, which was a little bit longer. I would say I don't love writing, but I can write. <laughs> <laughs> I usually try to keep it for like all of the pitches because I work very much in this format of photographing first and then pitching and doing a little intro mm-hmm. on a PDF and sending it out to people. I mean, in terms of like amount of writing that I do, I do about like 400, 500 words. And also I'm always interviewing people anyway, just like informally of having conversation as I'm making photos and collecting just the information that will then inform the photos, but then also then goes into the body of, you know, the pitch for whatever I'm sending out. Yeah, because I would think that for an editor to have someone who, who can encapsulate the story beyond just the pictures, I think is probably an advantage over someone else who just sends, hey, I shot these things. I think it's a cool story. Be interested in your magazine. And yeah. what do you think? Yeah, I also kind of like my whether or not I, it's it's always a relationship too with the editor of like what their expectations are with the piece of like oh does this photographer just assume that it should be a photo essay but i think when i'm sending it out it's this is what i see as the story these are some in an intro about the story mm-hmm. but i'm very much open to if like there should be a, a writer a, a writer that that is their job they're probably 100 percent a much better writer than i am then i think then that that works you know and it's a collaboration of the story But yeah, I mean, I think, and I also spent a lot of time doing the research of like pre-research, pre-interviews of what the story is, and then also the research into how it affects like nationally or globally or whatever the issue is. So do you already have a list of potential people in mind when you're saying, okay, I'm going to do this story on the skateboarders? And you mentioned that ESPN picked it up, but are you thinking about, okay, there's, here's this list of publications that might be interested in it. And do you spend a good amount of time in terms of discerning what, who those are and in terms of sending, sending it out? Do you, do you send it out, for example, do you send it out just to all of them at the same time? Do you send them at one at a time? How does that work? So I, this sounds so nerdy, but I have a spreadsheet and I list out all those stories that I'm working on. I'm usually working on around like two to four stories self-assigned at any given time, depending on, you know, not photographing all at the same time. And they're at different stages. So I have a spreadsheet. It lists out what my stories are, who I want to pitch it to, um, where I think it would be a good fit, and then sort of like what stage it's at and who I've pitched it to already. So that just helps me keep all my thoughts together and visualize on the spreadsheet of like, who who does this make sense to go to? And I, I do them, I pitch it out to one editor at a time. I usually give it a few days before I respond to them or, or like a week to do a checkup, but I do a few days to send it to another editor if I haven't heard back, mm-hmm. depending on how timely it is. If it's not pressing for time, if it's a feature that's not just hard hitting news that's happening like right away, then I'll give it a little bit more time. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense that you're kind of reasonable in terms of how much time you spend on producing the initial photographs initially, because there's no guarantee that you're going to have to find a market for it. Right. So you don't want to spend all this time that you could dedicate to other photography that's more viable. But sometimes that can be heartbreaking. It's a dance. Yeah, it's a dance of like, there's been some stories where I pitch out like after one day of photographing and just pitch out the idea with some images to show the concept a little bit and where I'm thinking. And then there's been other stories where I formed relationships with like friendships with the people that I'm photographing. So, you know, I just kind of keep in touch with them and 
invest a little bit more time, even if I'm not sure Mm -hmm. where it's going to go. Because, you know, we've kind of had a good rapport or something like that. I saw on on your website that you had, you know, done stuff for Vanity Fair, Washington Post. Yeah, for Washington Post, and uh, some of that got picked up by Vanity Fair. Okay. But I saw that one of the uh, newspapers is one in Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, okay. How did that, how does that work? How did, how did that come about? They found me through Blink. Okay. Yeah. So, um, that was last fire season and they saw that I was in the area. And so then they sent me out to cover the Woolsey fires for a few days. You must have been surprised by that call. Yeah. <laughs> I had never heard of it before. They have one reporter that is in their U.S. correspondent who's in mm-hmm. New York, and she flew out. And it was really great. It was a jump into, I mean, I had moved here not that long prior, and it was a jump into fire seasons and yeah. things like that. And it was really great working with the reporter because it was, they were a great publication to work for. So we were able to find some features and also do general coverage and live. She was doing live reporting as I was filming. So that was a really good, I love when I can work with reporters in the field. Yeah. And there's some serious demands in being able to photograph that, that kind of event. I'm, I'm still learning. I mean, I was just covering it yesterday actually, but both of those calls, when I got them, it was a little bit right after the initial night, mm-hmm. you know, whether, so like yesterday, uh, the fire was happening at night. This was more of the aftermath, even though it was still going on. We just couldn't get up into the canyons. Same with the other one. The other one last year was for um, Svenska Dag- Dagbladat. Mm-hmm. We were focusing on like the displacement of people and what was happening with their lives. So before you became a photographer, you were interested in art and you went to school initially for art. But then you had a conversation with someone that made you sort of rethink that and... Yeah, I didn't, I didn't uh, even get past the initiation for the art program or the orientation, I guess you'd say. So I went to school at East Carolina University and I was going to go for art. And in the orientation, the director was like, oh, you know, most of the art students graduate. It takes them 75 percent graduate in five years or something like that. And I was like that's too long for me. I got to (laughs) go. (laughs) And so I went to uh, the business school actually, and that has turned out to be really, really helpful being a freelance photographer, but um, I didn't know it at the time. A semester in doing my classes, I was really bored in the sense of accounting wasn't very thrilling to me. Finance was boring. And so I joined, I added an art minor. And that's where I had like really wonderful photo teachers and drawing teachers. And I joined the student newspaper as a photographer and then joined or then became photo editor. So I always say like the student newspaper was my education of like being a photojournalist. And then the business classes were really, really helpful for being my own business now. If anyone asked me, should they go to photo school? I go. Get a business degree. Photography is easier to learn than business. Yeah, and it's your passion. I mean, I for me, I my mom's an accountant, so I can say this. Like, I'm not very passionate about accounting. <laughs> <laughs> but you learn what yeah. you need in order to be able to do what you love. Right. And it's really hard to do what you love and to kind of learn the other stuff. Right, because then it feels like a huge barrier to yeah. get there. So I definitely am very passionate about talking to people about doing a business program or doing a business minor or like I want to, you know, have a chance to go back and speak to college students and in some format, I haven't figured it out yet, but just that the world's different now. As you, if you go to a photo program and, and the teachers that I had, you know, I think the world was very different when they were my age, you know, they weren't coming out freelancing as so many people are now. 
so yeah, I think there's a real importance to, like you said, students getting a business degree, a business program, or whatever it is, internships. So tell me after work, after you after you finish school, because I know that you're doing work as for let's say a second uh, shooter for a wedding photographer yep. for a while. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you have to sort of make the leap. So tell me about that transition from doing something that was, you know, relatively sustain, you know, uh, not sustainable, but but um, structured, structured, <laughs> yeah. Where you can have an, you can have pretty much a good expectation of, right. especially if you're a second photographer, right? You know, loved it, right? It's but, a great. I, so I, I pretty much when I graduated from college, I immediately started doing. I, well, I actually did an internship first for a. Um, like a commercial agency that they represented photographers and other artists uh, in New York. And I loved that because I kind of wanted to do it so I could understand how they were marketing for photographers so that I could do that for myself without having to have an agent or I didn't know how that would, you know, how that works. Obviously you have to build up work before you get repped. So that was really helpful in the terms of like, how do big photographers get their work out there? How do they get clients? And I was on big shoots and able to just like, kind of like get a little bit of understanding about that. And so after that, that was six months, I was second shooting for weddings, but also at the same time trying to like figure out how to be a photojournalist. It was that last year of school that I, I realized that I wanted to jump into freelance. I like, I won this like regional North Carolina contest and I was like, Oh, I can, I, can do this a little bit. So that kind of gave me the confidence to say, okay, like, let me just jump right in. So second shooting for weddings and also trying to go to workshops and conferences within the photojournalism realm, meeting people. I didn't really have that photojournalism community yet. So that was the launch. So working on self-assigned projects, that's where I also produced, pitched and produced to Giveology, the nonprofit around mm-hmm. dreams that could be. So that project happened because I felt I want to work with nonprofits or I want to work around social issues. How do I do that? Okay. So I just made the project. So was the um, uh, Missouri Photographic Workshop before that project? That was after. That was after? Yeah. Okay. So dreams that could be that project kind of just happened because... I, I wanted to start telling stories around social issues and I didn't know how to go about doing that. Mm. So I had volunteered with that nonprofit before and I said, you know, let's, which was a, a nonprofit that reaches out to organiz- smaller organizations throughout the world and gets them kind of broadcast fund, like broadcast to the world and get more funding. But they work around education and students. And so I was like, why don't we do very personal narratives stories for around mm. the students? really focus in on who they are. And they were like, great, let's do it. So I was like, okay, I thought it was going to be a little bit harder than that. But I made a pitch deck and I, you know, send it all to them. And then, so that was my first kind of like jump into storytelling. But you had to do some crowdfunding in order to do that. So tell us about it. Yeah. So this was, I mean, that was a big jump. And that's a huge leap (laughs) coming from that. I would probably recommend not doing that. Start a lot smaller. It was uh, pretty ridiculous of me. But I but like stories where people dive into the deep end. Really dived right in. So, so how to do crowdfunding? So we set up a website. I was working with a friend of mine who's a filmmaker, and he we did a promotional video. We kept it all on the website, just instead of doing you know one of the crowdfunding websites. We hosted a gala. We had you know 
after, I mean, after the project, we did a, a gallery with the work and, and I made a book and we sold the book for the nonprofit and things like that. So, yeah, it was like about it was like about six months to a year of generating the, the money to be yeah. able to go over there because the nonprofit was 100 percent volunteer run. So it was very much a labor of love on all parts. But, but it's amazing that uh, that you really got a chance to sort of cut your teeth in a whole variety of different ways. Yeah. You know, in terms of working with a nonprofit, organizing all of these things, procuring funding, putting together a book, an exhibit. I mean, that's a whole lot of stuff yeah, to be doing. And, just doing one of those things yeah. can drive some people crazy. <laughs> doing them all simultaneously. Yeah, it was it was that, exactly as you said, like <laughs> cutting my teeth on this and figuring it out. But in this way, I was really granted some freedom because the... Because I was the visual yeah. storytelling expert in this situation, even though I was just starting out and I really was figuring it out. Because the nonprofit didn't have a marketing team or a visuals team, so it gave me the space to figure it out. Mm. Um, and a big part of it was also, like we said, like having those pre-interviews to figure out what who wants to tell their story, who wants to be a part of the project. Which with this project, we went to um, Benin, West Africa, and Chennai, India. And so... We were having a lot of Skype conversation, email conversations with the nonprofit, different nonprofits to figure out first what country were we going to and then what students, you know, one, wanted to be involved and two, had interesting stories that they wanted to tell. So after that project and doing all of that work, that's when I was like, OK, that was a lot of a lot of the back end work. I really want to just kind of be able to spend more time with people. Yeah. This interview and many others this season have been conducted in a studio which was once a garage full of junk. For years, I worked out of our second bedroom, but it wasn't until we built this space that I was finally able to invite people to come to me for interviews. It creates a wonderful dynamic for my conversations and helps ensure a consistent level of sound quality that I love and I hope you appreciate. Though I can't conduct every interview here, I'm very pleased when I can because I know how special the results will be. Your support has helped me to make many such investments over the years and continues to do so as we enter our 14th year of production. And you can help us to continue doing this work by supporting us financially, by becoming a Patreon supporter and committing to a reoccurring donation of $5 or more a month. For less than what you would spend for a coffee and a muffin, you can help us to continue bringing you great content every week. If you haven't already, please visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame and become a Patreon supporter today. Thanks to Head22449, David Mullen, and Michelle Elkins for their recent contributions. A little bit helps a whole lot. You can also support the show by writing a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And even better, if you really enjoy an episode, spread the word via an email to a friend, a post on your social networks, or word of mouth. It makes all the difference. So thank you for your support and being part of the TCF community. Uh, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite stories on your site is the uh, Harlem lacrosse team. The story's fantastic, but it's just some of the images there, especially the one of the kids on the subway car mm -hmm. with their all their lacrosse gear. I just thought, that, oh my God, that is just so, 
<laughs> so awesome. Tell us, tell us about that, how that story came about and, yeah. and your experience with it. Um, so th- that's been an organization that I've kind of kept in touch with even out here. And I've, I've been working on a story uh, around one of the athletes out here. But I got connected with them through a friend of mine. And we were working on, it was a commercial project. And she knew my passion for social issues and working with nonprofits. And she's like, you have to meet my friend, Joel. He worked at Harlem Lacrosse or works at Harlem Lacrosse. So we met up in in New York a few years ago, and I documented one of their game days. So it was kind of a practice before, and then and going out to the game and traveling with them. I just like fell in love with their mission and their real impact and the students that you know they work with. So this this nonprofit they embed into the schools, and so they actually their coaches are kind of like a director at the school for the student athletes. So they kind of have this mentor, this, you know, person looking out for them, this coach. And so I was just really impressed by that, having worked with different nonprofits and seeing different levels of impact. I thought this was a really good model. So yeah, so I I just kind of kept in touch with them, tried to identify certain stories. One of them didn't work out in the sense that Similar to what you were saying about the one family that you were working with, they were they didn't want to show their home. Mm-hmm. It was a little messy, similar situation. So it was like, I totally get it, understand. And we kind of pulled the plug on that narrative, but I still just wanted to spend time with them. So I worked with them in New York and Baltimore. And then when I moved out here, I reached out and was like, any stories, you know? And so we've been working together again out here. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Did that particular story, since it involves sports, help you in any way in terms of doing the story on the the UCLA uh, gymnastics team? I somehow have just ended up in a lot of different sports stories, even though I'm not a sports (laughs) photographer. And having conversations with some friends, I I think it what it comes down to is I'm really like you know attracted to stories about community and strength and overcoming things, and that is sports. Like you can find all of those things in sports. So yeah, it actually did help out with the UCLA gymnastics story. And that was really fun because they didn't want me to photograph who was winning or the, you know, the actual event. They wanted me to photograph on features of some of the athletes. So that was great for me because I, I look for the quieter moments and the kind of like in, with Harlem lacrosse, the subway. That's yeah. like not the game, but that's like one of my favorite pictures. Uh, did you find that because UCLA gymnastics teams is so much more high profile and that there are a lot more self-aware in terms of imagery and use of imagery, did that result in you having to work or to engage with people differently than people who are, you know, who have no idea or concern about how they're being photographed? So with them, no. Some other, you know, I've had some other assignments where it has been that way, but Mm -hmm. very surprisingly, they were so open and involved, like very much just in their in their routine and living their lives, even though it was like, you know they were focused for the event and they were they were so open with us and I could go anywhere, which I was so surprised about. Yeah. They at first were a little timid about me going into the locker room, which was makes sense, but they were like, you know what, you can come in for like our little cheer or like their you know pep rally before. Yeah. But I did so very much, like I was very much aware of them allowing me to do that, where that's not pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't stay too long. But for the rest of it, they let me everywhere, like right up next to them during while they were competing. And how, how much time did you spend for that story? Um, that was only a few hours. So that was just at, you know, one of their competitions. I, I feel that sometimes the pressure of two hours, I can manage much more easier than I can 
giving a really extended period of time because when I go in for a very short period of time, I know exactly what I need to get. So in, in your experience, when you go and you know you only have a limited amount of time, you have to have a diversity of imagery. So what? how do you work to make sure going in that you get what you need? Well, for me, long form or sh- like a short amount of time, either way, I make a shot list before okay. I go in. That's really helpful for me. I, I had some help from Mary Vinolas, who's a freelance photo editor, and she was looking at some of my work in like years ago. And she was like, your strongest work is when you have a clear, like you clearly identify what the story is. And she was like, some of your weaker work is the ones where you're not sure what the story is. So making Mm. that pre-shot list, even though it's documentary and and I'm just going, I don't know what will happen, helps me get a variety of shots and like I'll, I'll do a mood board before of very similar assignments and look, okay, like. For that, for that assignment, I, d- I looked up images of gymnastics event competitions and super, super close, close shots of their hands and then going to the top of the gym and getting there was super wide. So whenever I'm in an assignment, whether it's even if it's short I'll, and I'm like feeling like, OK, I'm getting a lot of these medium shots. Like, what else do I need? I'll, yeah. I'll pull up my phone, look at my like shot list and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it helps, helps focus me again. Because that, that works for me because we're both of the personal projects that, that uh, I'm doing right now. I don't have a shot list, but I have a mental note in my head of I know what the story's about. So I'm always looking for moments that tie into those aspects of the story. Mm-hmm. So there could be a lot of other stuff going or happening, a lot of which repeats itself anyway. Right. So it's like it's not it's not necessary that I always get every moment as it happens. Because especially if it's about human interaction or or, or, or in sports, it's like it's going to happen again. Right. Right. So it gives you a sort of grace in terms of if you miss it, you can get it again. But those other sort of critical moments are much more. Yeah. And I think the pressure, too, of like with a short assignment, though, and you're kind of in the intensity of the moment and Mm -hmm. you're feeling like time's going really fast or, you know, like I can be really tough on myself in the middle of assignment, just be like, I'm not getting it. What do I need? You know, and that list or just having a visual list of like, okay, that helps just be like, break me out of those headspace and just be like, oh yeah, gets me back to what I need. Yeah. Even though you don't have control of say the way it's laid out, do you sometimes thinking, okay, what's going to be my opener? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think so. So when I was at the student newspaper, I was photo editor for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So having that experience, I was managing at one point a team of 12 photographers and I also did some layout design during some of that. So that really gives me a sense of like that experience helps me think in the editor's shoes because they need their deadlines. They need a variety of images. If it's going to be a thumbnail, it needs to be probably a closer shot versus mm-hmm. a wide shot. So I'm definitely thinking about that. And that's always in the back of my head. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that I had that experience myself because it just gave me, it, it taught me the importance that not every picture has to be Pulitzer quality <laughs> of photographs and it's not going to happen anyway. Because yeah. sometimes <laughs> some images that don't stand alone, don't stand out. Right. When juxtaposed next to another image, all of a sudden there's a resonance that, that exists between the two images and it furthers the story. Right. So as long as the content's there, it really doesn't matter whether it's perfectly composed or had the best light. But if you're missing that picture, yeah, it is really hard to. And I think starting from like the storytelling pers- like point, viewpoint anyway, for mm-hmm. me, it's it's not just about the one picture. For me, it's always about like this sequence of photos, you okay. know. 
Tell me about the story that you did for the Missouri Photographic Workshop, which is intense. Uh, because for those of you who don't know, you, uh, the Missouri Photographic Workshop has been going on for over 50 years? I think it's over 70. 70 maybe? Yeah. yeah it's, a long, it's a long time. And basically they have young photojournalists from all over the country, sometimes all, from all over the world. And you go and visit a small town in Missouri and you go and find a story and you work on it for several days with the uh, with the help of two editors who have a lot of experience. But the thing is, you're basically dropped in with barely a parachute. This is basically, <laughs> okay, you're here, go out and find the story. And you, you found a great story with Kim, mm -hmm, uh, yep. her name. And uh, tell us about her and how that, that all came about and how you gained access. Because as as you'll see when you guys visit the uh, the website, she's faced some challenges and she has a lot of stuff going on. And getting her trust to open up her life to your camera was uh, an amazing thing, especially considering the the circumstances under which you were working. Yeah. Like you said, Missouri Photo Workshop, you kind of get dropped in. Very intense week. And like just you're only allowed to photograph with 400 frames and they check. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not allowed to delete, uh, which is was a really, really amazing experience. I think everybody should do it because it's really hard. And my coaches were uh, Bill Maher and Peggy Petey. And Love so they Peggy. were really, yeah, Peggy's just really awesome. amazing. And so we all, all the students stay at like this one inn that's like pretty close to where, I mean, in this specific town. And so Kim was actually, she was taking care of the inn that we were all staying at. Oh. Once we, you know, got into the workshop and we were like getting settled after like pre, you know, regist registering when we got there and getting all settled and they're like, all right, go, go find your stories. I was like running around town, meeting different people, meeting like doctors and like asking people what stories they thought, you know, were interesting about the town or people that were characters that mm. they thought should be, have their story told. Um, and so I was like dropping something off at, at my room and then I was coming out and I noticed like this little boy playing with his mom. And so I grew up with a single mom, so I'm very much like a really strong mom, me and her growing up. So I'm very much like drawn to like strong mom stories anyway. Yeah. So I saw this little boy playing and I was like, that's interesting because he's not in school. He's with his mom while she works. So I wonder what, what is going on. So I just like knocked on the door and just started talking and it was probably like a five to 10 minute conversation and we got deep into it pretty quick. And I, with Missouri, I was kind of framing like my initial kind of conversations with people was like, aren't we crazy? Like there's like 40 of us <laughs> running around town. I'm sure you've seen us. So yeah, it was a pretty quick conversation, but we got deep really fast. I also share a lot about myself when I'm asking people to open up about yeah. them. And so I relate as well and open up. And I think that helps people feel like I'm not putting a spotlight on them. And so I told her, I was like, okay, well, I would love to, I have to run back and I would love to talk more with you about doing your story if you're interested and telling your story um, if you want to. And I think giving people that trust of you don't have to do this yeah. makes them feel not like, like taken advantage of or, mm -hmm. or something like that. And so I went back and, and cause with Missouri photo workshop, you have to kind of pitch your editors yeah. Sometimes it's like the fourth story that you give them that gets approved. Not everyone does. They were they gave me the green light. And so I went right back to Kim after that. And we had about a four-hour conversation that afternoon in the park, just kind of going into what she was going through. She had lost her child, um, and it was about to be the anniversary of that passing. Mm -hmm. 
so yeah, so so I'm rambling now. No, no, you're not rambling at all. No, that's yeah, because you, you see the the diversity of imagery that you get in terms of her visiting the grave of the child that she lost when she's working, when she's in the car with the kids. I mean, it's like. You know, it's, I think it's about uh, three days or maybe four days of shooting. I, yeah, I think we had like three to, f- yeah, so, something like there. Something yeah. like that. But, you know, you got a lot of stuff because you were spending as much time as you possibly can mm-hmm. going there and then going to the editors, showing them the work that you've done. They're getting feedback and then you're having to go back out there. So one of the like, uh, I think everyone when they do that workshop has like this like breaking point. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh my God, uh, I cried in my car. I would also would recommend recommend people renting a car so you can like have a little bit of a mm-hmm. lens space for like a few seconds so we could only photograph 400 frames um and the first day i was just like making way too many pictures of just like them playing in the park which yeah. i don't even think end up in the final you know set and so by the time we had to get to going to the grave that was a very important moment. And I had literally 25 images left and Bill was freaking wow. out. <laughs> and I was like, all right, obviously I needed to learn how to do this because I'm overshooting a lot. And so I think I made like 15 images there and I was forcing myself to just hold back a little bit, yeah. uh, which was really challenging. And then the final, some of my favorite images at the end when they're in, going to bed and like I had like 10 pictures to take left and yeah. I was just like, I need to force myself to wait. I did one on a, a guy in his seventies that uh, was a meals on wheels driver. And so his routine was fairly fixed. You know, he would go in the morning, pick up the, the meals and then drive them. So it was always the same places, the same locations. It wasn't diversity of, uh, of stuff there, but the more interesting images for me were um, when he was back at his house where he would spend most of most of his day and his daughter had moved in. So his two granddaughters were in there. So that, that, that dynamic was really kind of interesting. And he had, he had been a widower, widower, I don't know for how many, many years, but the day before the last day, uh, just in passing, he mentions he has a girlfriend and I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and when I tell my editors, they're going, there was some event happening that night and he was going to visit his girlfriend. Said, You're going over there. Said, of course I'm going over there. Yeah. And it was just this nice platonic relationship. And they would just sit there on the couch talking to each other. And I made an okay image. My editor pointed out how I could have been a better image. Yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course. But yeah. it still was just like those, there are always those things that you just, when you realize that, when you realize this has to be in there. And that is one of the most exciting things. Yeah. But also one of the most crazy making things too, because it's just like, I have to get this. Right. Right. And if you miss it, you're just like, well, I spent a lot of time and with Kim specifically, I spent, you know, we had like a four hour conversation even after. So I kind of like a pre-interview of before the story Mm -hmm. happened. And, and with all stories, I do this, but specifically with sensitive stories, I spend a lot of time explaining what my ideas are for the project, where I see it going, if it's going to go anywhere, not with Missouri for the workshop, that was for the workshop, but so that they feel very much like they understand what's happening too in the process because it is such a like a, a strange thing to just come come into someone's lives. So I tried to explain like very much like the whole entire process. And then for Kim, like I said, I, I ask so many questions when I'm yeah. telling someone's story. So I think for her, it was a little bit therapeutic of a process because I think it might have been like some of the first times that 
people were asking so many questions or cared to ask or spend that much time and listening to her story and kind of everything that she's had to overcome. So, and there's a lot of things that aren't in the story that I couldn't put in um, or I didn't feel it would be right to put in. Yeah. I think like just spending that time really is huge. For that kind of work, it's, it's for me, one of the big lessons has been that in terms of the tools that you have, uh, your ears are much more important than your camera. It's your ability to be able to listen and make the person the priority rather than just the images that allows you to do what you need to do as a photographer. If you're fixated fixated completely on your imagery, and basically if you're just concerned about what you need and what you want, you're going to miss a whole lot. Technically, you may may make some really competent, effective photographs. Right. But you're going to be missing the mark in a big way. Yeah. And we had that conversation of, I was like, if there's anything that you feel uncomfortable with, if you feel that like I need to put my camera down, let me know because Mm -hmm. I'm happy to do that. Because I think that's more important, like you said, than just getting that extra photo where if you're spending this much time with people, there's going to be a lot of moments. Yeah. For this project that I'm working on with my mother-in-law, she was... She first moved into us because she had a crisis and um, and she was slurring her words that night and my wife thought she might be having a stroke. So we called the 911 and the ambulance and the fire firemen came and I was sitting there with her, you know, trying to keep her keep her attention. She was throwing up and mm-hmm. I was there and then at some moment all the firemen where they are in the kitchen and I'm like taking a step back and I'm at the table with her Wow! and I'm thinking there's a picture here. Right. right. I didn't take it. Right. I didn't take it. Part of it was because I was hearing my wife in a panic in the other room. Right. Cause we didn't know exactly what was happening. It ended up being just a urinary tract infection that she's had before. And that caused the sort of lupus, but we didn't know that at that moment. Right. You know, and I just decided at that moment not to take the picture. And later on I thought about, man, it would have been, important part of this story, but, you know, part of me as, as a husband and son-in-law, it was just like, I need to be present for her right now. Totally. And the picture has to be secondary. And then the photojournalist in me is going, cause I know if I, my editor, if a real editor was there, <laughs> you should have taken a damn picture. <laughs> yeah. You know, but sometimes it, it you get to a, a moment where you really have to make a, a choice and sometimes they're not easy to make. Yeah. And I think too, you can never forget about the relationships, even though as a photojournalist, you're documenting what's happening. Mm-hmm. But even if you just met people for the first time, there's still that relationship and that trust and that human person. Yeah. It's not just the photo. It's, it's their lives. Yeah. So, and I think people recognize those moments when you choose not to make the photograph when you could. Right. And I think that to some degree, even if they're not photo savvy, that they nevertheless recognize and appreciate when you do that. It may be not what a quote unquote true photojournalist would do, but, you know, you're a human being first and it's about the relationships you've created and hopefully can sustain. That's really important. Yeah. And I think it's just a picture. Right. I got it. Exactly. I got into this to like really help empower people and be able to listen to people. The camera is the tool that like brings those relationships to happen. Mm -hmm. I have to, you know, let follow the person, you know, like let them lead. I'm, I'm, they're inviting me into their lives. So, you know, I'm, I'm following suit. And if it's not okay with them, then I hear them, you know? Um, One of the things I was a member of WAPOW, I mean, I still am technically, but I don't live in DC. So, you know, 
Which is? Uh, Women Photojournalists of Washington, D.C. And we had a a meetup one time, and I remember Daniela Zalkman was talking about her project around indigenous people and the beautiful portraits that she's done. Mm -hmm. And she made a comment about, it was like, you know, a few years ago, so um, this is not direct, but just made a comment about how she, when she originally started photographing the project, it was very documentary. And then she kind of was thinking about ways of like portraying the story and how would she want like her own mom portrayed if it was on the cover of a magazine. Mm, And, you know, if you're photographing uh, a survivor or someone who's really had a traumatic experience, maybe going through addiction or something that is, you know, a mental health problem or issue or crisis, how would you portray them? And so I, I thought about that a lot with Kim and how to, and if it was my own mom, how do we portray people in their invulnerable situations and they're inviting you into their lives? And I see a lot of strength in so many people. It doesn't matter, you know, what's going on. And I saw a lot of strength in Kim. So I really wanted to focus in on that. So I think that always kind of sticks yeah. in the back of my head. And of, that comes across in those imageries that, that, in, that, in, that, in, that, in that project. And, and, and I know that in the hands of someone else less sensitive that she could have been portrayed in a much in a harsher way. And yeah. So kudos to you for having that sensitivity. And like you said, you know, you were raised by a single mother. So I think that those experiences really uh, are important to remember and to um, use as we decide to, as we decide what stories we're going to tell and how we're going to tell them. Yeah. And I think having conversations like this, and I think right now, or at least uh, like I'm having a lot of those conversations of when you're sharing work before it goes anywhere and asking, like asking these sensitive questions and, and kind of looking internally and being like, well, why am I the one telling this story and asking those really hard questions of, um, of your, of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Cause regardless of race, you know, it's because race and who, and, uh, you know, what kind of photographers documenting the lives of people of color? I think that as photographers, as a class, we're a very privileged class. Yeah. And yes, race and sex and all of that comes into it. But I think it's really important to be aware that as photographers who have a degree of power to be able to tell the stories of people who are to some degree less powerful is really an important responsibility. Absolutely. And you can't be so self-obsessed about your, your career, your portfolio and your all that other stuff and be blind to that because right. I think there's too much work that's out there that does a disservice, not only to the, you know, to the, to the craft and the work, but also to those people in the community. Cause that, that stuff does long lasting damage maybe not to that person, but to that perception of people that are like that. Well, and we're also fragile, you know, like if you're working on like the people are all fragile as humans in general, mm-hmm. but if you're going into communities and wanting to tell stories, I mean, I think sensitivity is like the number first thing, the most important thing to really respect people, uh, respect their lives and their homes. And because it's not your life, you know, (laughs) like no matter what it's, you're coming into someone else's life. So that's huge. And I think spending that time figuring out what people want to say, because even though they're not, you're not showing them the pictures, You know, in that way, it's a collaborative process because they're allowing you to be there. Yeah, because I think about the level of trust I would have to have to invite some stranger into my house. Right. And to hang out and photograph me, you know, sitting on my couch. Right. Or if you're, you know, like if when you're going to the hospital, having a stranger there 
documenting you going to the hospital yeah. or, you know, like not in our brightest moments, but that's the moments that photojournalists mm-hmm. want to get into. <laughs> that's a good so, stuff. <laughs> you know, that's a huge vulnerability that people are allowing us to do. Yeah. And I'm, I'm grateful that, that people do because those are some amazing stories and they can do so much for so many people when they have a chance to see them. And um, if you, yeah, absolutely. And if you aren't on a deadline, if it is a, you know, a passion project or a self-assigned story or whatever it is, taking that time, I think is invaluable Yeah. or not feeling like I need to get this out right away. And it's about the story, but it's really about the people. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I was like really thinking about this question since you <laughs> since you asked me. Can I do two? Okay. I'm sorry. I'm breaking the rule. Okay. Well, um, I also looked through the list because there's a few people that you've already interviewed mm-hmm. that I didn't want to repeat. So that's a very important question, which is uh, the first is Philip Montgomery. I love his work. Um, he does just these really powerful black and white documentary storytelling and also portraits. Recently, he did some portraits for The New Yorker, which were really powerful. And then the second is a friend of mine, uh, September Dawn Bottoms. She is just made, she just, she used to live here in LA and then she just moved to Oklahoma and she's making some really powerful work around her family and around the community. And, um, so yeah, definitely. That's great. Definitely check her out. Thank you so much for coming up. Thank you so much. This is a huge honor. I appreciate it. Thanks to Allison for sitting down with me. Find out more about her and her work by visiting allisonzuka.com. I also have two upcoming workshops, the first in Los Angeles in November at the Los Angeles Center of Photography and in Tokyo, Japan in December. You can find out more by visiting nobechicreatives.com for my workshop in Tokyo and lacpphoto.org for my workshop in Los Angeles. And check out our YouTube channel where I offer comments on photography submitted by TCF listeners who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr pool. Check out the TCF Flickr pool and our YouTube channel by clicking on the links in the show notes and the website. My latest book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow is now available. You can purchase it today and receive 40% off the list price when you order it from the Rocky Nook website. Use the promo code Pirello40 at checkout to take advantage of the discount. And receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks by signing up for the Candid Frame mailing list, where I share thoughts about life, photography, and keep you updated on TCF events. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Not all episodes may be available on your podcaster of choice, so download, listen, and share any and all episodes of the Candid Frame by downloading the TCF app, available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your support, it's free. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, the show's senior producer, Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>